0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So, the idea that the evolutionary account of the origin of biological species contradicts the doctrine of creation as presented in Genesis, the idea that, prompted the subtitle of tonight's talk, does seem to have won a certain level of acceptance. When a Pew Research Center poll on what Americans thought about the biblical doctrine of creation and uh, Darwin's theory of evolution showed that many people thought both were true, the Center said in a press release that since creationism and evolution are incompatible as explanations, some portion of the public is clearly confused about the meaning of the terms. In fact, that portion of the public are not the only ones who see no such incompatibility. In the late Theodosius Dobzhansky, one of the 20th century's leading evolutionary biologists, in a 1973 article that most people like to quote for its title, namely that nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution, said, it's wrong to hold creation and evolution as mutually exclusive alternatives. I'm a creationist and an evolutionist. He said, St. John Paul uh, II made the same point, though in different words, in an address to the Pontifical Academy of Sciences in 1996. Whether evolution is at odds with Genesis depends on what one means by evolution and on what Genesis really says. So this lecture will have have three parts. Uh, The first part will clarify the idea of evolution by situating Charles Darwin's evolutionary theory of the origin of biological species into its larger scientific context, and will say something about why the theory has earned general acceptance among scientists. The second part will clarify the concept of creation, showing how St. Thomas represented the, the central ideas of the Genesis narrative in a propositional form in his Summa Theologiae. The third part will juxtapose the two ideas, arguing that Darwin's general idea of a naturalistic evolutionary origin of the species is compatible with Christian doctrine of creation and with the related doctrine of providence. Only in the question of the origin of the human race does one have to tread carefully to avoid contradiction. But uh, this can, for the most part, be done. The two accounts of origins are best seen then as complementary, not contradictory. So first, uh, what is evolution? I want to begin by saying a word about what evolution is not. For many people, the word calls to mind the idea of a cosmical process, one and continuous, from nebula to man, from star to soul, from atom to society. I want to emphasize the singularity of that term, a, cosmical process. There have to be, sure, been thinkers who haven't had such a cosmic vision of the world. This was done in a materialistic way by German biologist Ernst Haeckel and by English philosopher Herbert Spencer in the 19th century. It was done in a spiritualistic way by French Jesuit paleontologist Pierre Teilhard de Chardin in the 20th. In developing their worldviews, however, Haeckel, Spencer, and Teilhard uh, went far beyond drawing conclusions from scientific evidence to the extent that an evolutionary history of the cosmos can be told as a scientific story, it's not so much a story of one continuous process as it is a composite of distinct but connectable scientific theories. From the Big Bang, through a somewhat Laplacian theory of the origin of the solar system, and a somewhat Lyellian geology, to an as yet undeveloped account of the origin of life and a somewhat Darwinian account of the origin of species. Whatever the uses to which these theories might have been put by some, but by no means all of their supporters, the theories themselves were not essentially attacks on Christian doctrine. Indeed, their foundations were laid partly by Catholics, René Descartes, Blessed Neil Stinson, Father George Lemaitre, who's pictured there, partly by other Christians, just just Leo and partly by men who had lost their Christian faith for reasons unconnected to evolution, but who did not make any Christian polemics a feature of their their work. Charles Darwin. In this lecture, I'll focus on one particular evolutionary theory, the account of the origin of biological species. We need to identify its contents and to recognize it as a theory of a particular kind. That'll help us disentangle it from certain philosophical ideas, saliently materialism, with which it sometimes unjustifiably claims to have some kind of logical connection. But first, I need to say a word about about kinds of scientific theories. Some scientific theories explain uh, initially puzzling natural phenomena by appeal to, by the postulation of, laws or structures in light of which those, those phenomena cease to be puzzling. Isaac Newton, James Clerk Maxwell, positive scientific laws. John Dalton and Liam Foundations of Chemical Atomism, positive underlying structure. Evolutionary theories constitute a kind of explanation very different from those synchronic theories. George Lemaitre, Belgian priest cosmologist and one of the inventors of the Big Bang Theory, characterized theories of this kind, of second diachronic as proposing to seek out initial conditions which are ideally simple from which the present world in all its complexity might have resulted through the natural interplay of known forces. Theories of this kind are found in, in, in many sciences, ranging from cosmology and historical geology to biology and historical linguistics. They explain not how things work, but, but where they came from. So Let's begin with an example. Why do the languages of uh, Romania and Portugal, of Italy and France, display such striking similarities and such systematic differences? The answer is that they're all descended with different modifications on the Danube and on the Tagus, on the Tiber and on the Seine, from a single known language, Latin, that was once spoken in all these places and of which we have extensive records. Why do Latin, Greek, Sanskrit, and Gothic display such striking similarities? in such systematic differences? At the end of the 18th century, Sir William Jones suggested an answer along the same lines, even though there's no direct evidence of an earlier Proto-Indo-European language from which all those languages have descended. The fact that Old Church Slavonic, Modern Lithuanian, and when it was discovered Hittite, could be added to that list only reinforced the plausibility of the hypothesis. It's a fruitful pattern. Descent with differential modification is the best explanation of certain kinds of diversity. Darwin proposed a formally similar explanation for the pattern of similarity and difference found in the flora and fauna of the earth. Why does the earth contain a quarter of a million different kinds of beetles? Why is there such striking resemblance between the wings of bats, the flippers of whales, uh, the legs of horses, and human limbs? and only a much looser similarity between bat wings and bird wings. Why is the genetic code the same for everything from fireflies to elephants? We might do best to begin our understanding of Darwin's theory, not with morphology, not with biology at all, but with geology, not with the work of any biologist at all, but rather the work of early 19th century surveyor and canal builder, William Smith is in the middle there. <laughs> Smith noticed as he dug his canals that different strata of the earth had distinct fossil content. Those strata had long been recognized as corresponding to succeeding epochs in the history of the earth, an idea that had been proposed by Blessed Neil Stenson in the 17th century. The obvious conclusion from what Smith observed was that at successive periods in the history of the planet, the earth was inhabited by successive species of living things. This idea of faunal succession is not a part of or an inference from Darwin's theory. It's rather a combination of generalized observations, uh, of generalized observation and inference from Stenson's principle of superposition. That went up at the top. At the time when an upper stratum was formed, the lower stratum had already become solid. At the time when the lower strata was being found, none of the upper strata existed. Formal succession is something that evolutionary biology was designed to explain. It was accepted in the early 19th century by the leading French geologist, the anti-evolutionist Georges Cuvier, no less than by Smith, who advanced no theory at all about the cause of the succession. It raises, however, in his turn, a further question. What's the origin of the species which occur in higher geological strata but are not found in the lower strata? Species, that is, that to all appearances exist in the later periods of the Earth's history but not in the earlier ones. That's the question that Darwin set out to answer. Is that geological context that underlies the title of his work? Where do these new species come from? That was the mystery of mysteries. A key clue to its solution came in 1855, when Alfred Russell, Russell Wallace published a short article arguing for what has been come to be called the Sarawak Law, it's the third item there. Every species has come into existence, coincident in both space and time, with a pre-existing closely allied species. That step, from mere succession of fauna, to uh, to a succession of similar fauna was also a generalization of observation. The next step, the idea that the successors not only came after the earlier fauna, but came from it, was an inference to the best explanation of those observations. It was one component in the theory of biological evolution published by Wallace and Darwin in 1858. It can be summarized as consisting of two ideas. The first common ancestry thesis, was that all biological species originated by descent with differential modification in different environments from one or a few first kinds of living things. This theory, Darwin argued in The Origin of Species, explained a wide array of facts in paleontology and paleogeography in comparative morphology and embryology. The explanatory reach of the common ancestry thesis, especially in its less comprehensive versions, won a fairly quick acceptance in the scientific world. It's perhaps worth adding that although Darwin's theory explains a wide array of facts from the diverse areas just mentioned, these are facts that are generally unknown to laymen. Non biologists simply do not wonder why the structure of bat wings resembles that of long legs and whale flippers. They don't wonder why the fauna of the Cape Verde and the Galapagos Islands differ from each other despite the similarity of environment and why each resembles the fauna of the nearest mainland. They do wonder how a species that lacks eyes or rings could ever turn into a species that has them. This lack of wonder about the features of the world that Darwin's trying to explain, combined with the somewhat counterintuitive nature of Darwin's solution, which, to highlight the paradox, attributes a common ancestor to beetles and whales, generates much of the skepticism that Darwin's theory continues to face. As Darwin himself wrote, anyone whose disposition leads him, to attach more weight to unexplained difficulties and to the explanation of a certain number of facts will certainly reject my theory. What caused the modifications to differentiate species? Darwin's second thesis was that the modifications were caused chiefly by uh, what he called natural selection. Animals in nature, no less than in the barnyards and dovecotes of England's breeders, vary from one individual to another within a species. Just as pigeon fanciers can produce strikingly varied types of pigeons by artificial selection, (coughs) selecting for breeding only those with the most pleasing traits, nature can produce striking variations of finches, mammals, or, or animals, by confining reproduction to those with traits necessary to survival in the environment in which they live, and by denying it to those that lack those traits. This, Darwin argued, can produce not only new varieties of pigeons, but new species of squirrels, new orders of mammals, new classes of vertebrates. The natural selection thesis is logically independent of common ancestry. The process existence as a modifier of species is a logical consequence of uncontroversial observed facts. Even contemporary anti evolutionists acknowledge this power to adapt species to their environment for example, to cause the development of drug resistant strains in bacteria. Darwin made, however, a stronger claim. They claimed that natural selection, given sufficient time, could effect, it could effect morphological transformation so striking as to constitute the transformation of one species into another. And for that matter, one order into another, that is not just a proto-squirrel species into flying squirrels and tree squirrels, but a proto-mammal into squirrels and whales. That one species was sometimes transformed into another was his first thesis. That it was primarily natural selection and not another mechanism that did so was his second. The natural selection thesis had a harder fight than did the common ancestry thesis, held back partly by the mistaken theories of inheritance still prevalent in the late 19th century and partly by the existence of superficially plausible rival mechanisms of evolutionary change. The natural selection thesis won general acceptance only with <clears throat> its synthesis with Mendelian genetics in the 1930s. We need to look also, however, at a third of Darwin's ideas, that man, no less than other biological species, owes his origin to descent with modification from earlier species. About this idea, we need to know two things. <clears throat> First, that it's not a component of his evolutionary theory in the strict sense of componency, but an application of it, a consequence, Though only when that theory is combined with quite distinct supplementary theses about human nature, the second thing to note is that the requisite supplementary thesis is not a strictly scientific thesis. It might be better characterized as mixed, philosophical-scientific one. His argument for the evolutionary origin of the human race was based on his idea that man is not different in kind from other animals. In the sin of man. Darwin argued that the similarities between man and animal are not merely physiological, but extended to mentality as as, as well. So there's a continuum all the way from the sea lamprey to Isaac Newton, and and worse. Uh, well, worse, more. I'm sorry, I mean I disagree with it, but to say more than that, he thought that the law the gaps between the animal kingdom between the and brain and the chimpanzee uh, were larger than the gap between the chimpanzee and, well, he said the most primitive human being, maybe to be more sensitive, when we replaced that. Uh, what do we want to say? Uh, the, the member of the opposing political party, we might say, or, I don't know, your kid's sister's boyfriend, something like that. Put something in there for, for from this guy. Uh, and the difference between the Human being of the lowest, most imminent intellect and most limited intellect, and Isaac Newton, say, was also a larger gap between the chimpanzee and, and any, any uh, uh, human being. So Darwin argued that the similarities between man and animal are not merely physiological, but extended to mentality as well. All human mental powers, not only perceptions and emotions, but conceptual thought, are at best only better developed versions of powers found at least in incipient versions in animals as well that the gap between the most intelligent animals and the least intelligent human beings, as I just illustrated, was less than the gap between the most intelligent human beings and the least. Uh, Darwin thought that the differences being only matters of degree, the transformation of animal and man could be effected by the same natural processes that effect the transformation of say, Eohippus into a modern horse. Without trying to undervalue Darwin's many other scientific ideas, from the origin of coral reefs to the African origins of the human race, we can fairly take these three as the central ideas of what has come to be called Darwinism. So, let's now turn to creation. What is it? Here I want to address two questions. First, what exactly is the content of the doctrine of creation? And second, what are the alternative ideas that constitute the proper contrast to that doctrine? So, creation, I want to say, is fundamentally a metaphysical account of the existence of the world. Evolutionary theories, it's important to note, provide an account only of the proximate origins of their subjects, not of their ultimate origin. They offer an account of the transformation of the world from a simple or homogeneous state to a complex or heterogeneous one. For example, from a world containing only a few biological species to one containing over a quarter of a million species of beetles. They presuppose the existence of the world whose transformation they describe.
1: They leave unanswered,
0: therefore, the question of where that world itself, for the evolutionist, that initial simple state, came from. One possible answer to that question is that it was created. Sometimes the term creation is used, rather too broadly, at least in my taste, to refer to any account of the origin of things, even to the extent of saying the materialists have their own creation story. This, I think, is not the way we Christians should use the term. We should carefully safeguard the names of our religious ideas. We should not use the term creation so broadly. So what's the narrower and more precise sense St. So Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologiae distinguished two kinds of origin, or as he sometimes called it, procession. One kind he finds in what he calls the procession of the divine persons, which we recall in Sunday on the recitation of the Creed, the Son of God begotten of the Father and the Holy Spirit, proceeding from the Father and the Son. Creation is an other kind of procession. He defines it as the emanation of the totality of an entity from the universal cause, namely God. In two, widely used scholastic phrases, it's the production of something in regards to its whole substance, or in other words, from its own non-being and from the non-being of any pre-existing thing. The next step is the identification of the creator and the things created. St. Thomas argues that only God can create anything since to create from nothing shows an infinite power, something that no creature has. And what did God create? Everything other than God, of course. We can be more specific in two ways. First, we can distinguish three kinds of things that God creates. Angels, each individual human soul and the material world as a, taken as a whole. In the first two cases, each individual, the archangel Raphael or the soul of Tobit is the immediate product of a single direct divine act. So is the material world taken as a whole. But when we begin to think about particular things in the material world, things get more complicated. What about particular animals, say Tobit's dog, or the Palm Sunday donkey? No one thinks that Tobit's dog was like Tobit's soul, directly created ex oh my God. It was just born of canine parents, Still, that dog was as much one of God's creatures uh, much, as much one of God's creatures as was the soul of his master. We need to distinguish here a second way of being more specific. What about the mode of creation? Absolute creation is the origin of anything by God without pre-existing means or material, and that must be contrasted to some kind of indirect creation. Production by the natural processes operate, operative in our directly created material world. So, what about animal species? Not type and stock, but dogs or donkeys. St. Thomas, of course, had no reason to think that some species originated by descent from other species. But in light of recent evidence that that may be so, we might know two things. First, the text of Genesis says that the earth and the waters brought forth plants and animals even as it also says that God made them. Second, although it would not be correct to attribute to St. Thomas an evolutionary account of the origin of species, it is also incorrect to attribute to him the idea that God directly produced fully formed oak trees or squirrels. He cites without objection St. Augustine's idea that God did not produce the plants in act, in their various species on the third day, but rather that the earth received the power of bringing forth the uh, bringing plants forth. Darwin's idea that the biological species themselves are their origin of the operation of natural processes does not challenge the doctrine of creation any more than did the birth of Tobit's dog. The evolutionary origin of species is no more an alternative to creation than is the reproductive origin of individuals. St. George Jackson, remember, one of the early, earliest Catholic defenders of biological evolution, contrasted uh, with the kind of absolute creation just mentioned, the second derivative kind, of, was there a derivative kind of, 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 of creation, namely the formation of anything by God in such a way that the preceding matter has been created with the potentiality to evolve from it under suitable conditions, all the various forms it subsequently assumes. Is the theory of evolution at least inconsistent with St. Thomas' interpretation of Genesis? Not having any reason for thinking otherwise, many of the fathers of the church accepted a fairly literal chronological interpretation of the on of the six days, that is. But not all did. St. Augustine, for example, thought that creation itself was instantaneous, that all the days that are called seven are one day represented in a sevenfold aspect. Elaboration of the doctrine of creation does not take us to the bacterial flagella or blood clotting cascades that are that feature so prominently in the work of today's anti-evolutionists. I want to say a few words to show what such an elaboration of the doctrine of creation itself uh, looks like. First, and then it's, it's an account of it's an account deeper than the transformation of one thing into another. It's deeper also than mere design. Say that God's that God created the world is to say the world depends on God for its very existence. And I drew from that a uh, lot uh, to illustrate is a passage from Lewis Carroll and and uh, one of you in the military sense of the term volunteer, volunteer to be Alice, when you read alone. So Alice is talking to Tweedledee, and Tweedledee. Tweedledee says the king's uh, dreaming now, and uh, what do you think he's dreaming about? Nobody can guess that. Well, why about you? And if he left off dreaming about you, where do you suppose you'd be? Where I am now, of course. Not you. You'd be nowhere. Why, you're only a sort of thing in the king's dream. And if the, that their king was to wake, you'd go out. Bang. Just like a candle. So, uh, well, that's uh, Carroll's humor. But this is how it is with God and, and creatures. We can emphasize Uh, this by saying that God conserves his creatures in being. But that is only a different way of conceiving of what St. Thomas thought was one and the same divine action as creation. Second, uh, it is in a very important respect, ontological, not chronological, or historical. St. Thomas, to be sure, did occasionally use the phrase production from nothing to mean production after there was nothing. But more generally, he did not Indeed, while he held the world did have such a beginning in time as a matter of faith, he thought that the two points were distinct. Even of a world with no beginning in time, one would have to ask whether that world was self-existent or dependent for its existence on God, or, or dependent for its existence on some other being. This point is easily missed. Many people think first of sequences of events when they think about cause and effect. In that kind of causality, an earlier event, say a collision of one billiard ball into another, causes another subsequent event, say the motion of the other two stationary ball. But not all causalities of that type. In a second kind of causality, there's a dependence, but no sequence. For example, a floor is slippery because it's wet. In the world we know, it might also become slippery when someone spilled water on it that the transition from non-wet to wet is not necessary to the floor's present state of being slippery because wet. If the floor had existed from all eternity and had been wet and slippery from all eternity, the wetness would still be the cause of the slipperiness. The wetness would not be chronologically prior to the slipperiness, but it would still be the cause. A thing that's existed for all eternity can still depend on something else for its very continued existence. Dependence in being is a possible feature, even of a thing that's existed for all eternity. Third, elaboration of the doctrine of creation leads us to theses far removed from those usually at the heart of anti-evolutionist polemics. All the theses which are about to cite are points of Catholic doctrine. Some defide, others not. Some are more exclusively articulated by St. Thomas and others Ludwig Ott, in his valuable fundamentals of Catholic doctrine, included these. The first, uh, theologically certain, the other two, defeating the world as the organ of wisdom. The world was created for the glorification of God. The world's a good world. We can embed the doctrine of creation into a more comprehensive account of divine action about the Trinity. So, all the uh, extra activities of God, that is all that relate to... Uh, something outside of him, or common for the three persons. We can talk, I suppose, sometimes, doing what God the Creator focuses on God the Father, but that's not good uh, theological elaboration of the, uh, of the concept as of the Son and the Holy Spirit. When also, uh, having been is I also dare The divine persons are one single common principle of creation. And about God's motive, God was moved by his goodness to create the world. And about divine freedom, God created the world free from exterior compulsion and inner necessity. He didn't have to do it. Uh, He was free to create this world or or any other. And given his choice to create a world, God had to create a good, good world. There is uh, not time to say more about those theses in a single lecture, but if you want to think more about creation, the best focus is to think about uh, uh, think about those those things. Unfortunately, those other theses, however, are not of much uh, relevance to the juxtaposition of the doctrine with theories of evolution. I mentioned them merely emphasize what a fuller of account of the doctrine of creation would include. So, next, the doctrine of creation and its rivals. The doctrine does real work. It's not the only idea about the origin of the world on offer in the marketplace of ideas. It's not anti-evolutionist, but it is an explicit rejection of a variety of other uh, accounts of the origin of the world that have arisen over the course of the intellectual history of mankind. The hexamron, the six days, as American theologian Conrad Heyers tells us, was an explicit rejection of the pagan theologies of the ancient Near East. For most peoples in the ancient world, the various regions of nature were divine. Sun, moon, stars, they were gods. In uh, light of this, of this historical context, it becomes clear what Genesis 1 is undertaking and accomplishing, a radical and sweeping affirmation of monotheism, vis- polytheism, sacredism, and idolatry. Each day takes on two principal categories of divinity in the pantheons of the day and declares that these are not gods at all, but creatures. Each day dismisses an additional cluster of deities arranged in a cosmological and symmetric order. Among other non-creationist alternatives are these. The world always existed. Where it came into existence by emanation from God. or a material world was created by an evil spirit. or the world came into being spontaneously out of nothing. Aristotle was an eternalist with on um, most interpretations, right, at least I an mean, emanationist. The, the ancient Persian religious thinker Mani gave us the creator demon. Some modern atheists in their desperation sound a all like spontaneous exnihilationists. The doctrine of creation and denying all of these alternatives, therefore, did and does real work, even if it is silent about, say, the proximate origin of bacterial flagella, or blood clotting cascades of starfish, even life itself. So, now let's try to juxtapose the two ideas. Even though the idea of evolution is compatible with the idea of creation, someone still might ask whether Darwin's particular theory of evolution raises particular theological problems for Catholics or for Christians generally. Christianity evolutionists seem to have three points of concern about Darwin's ideas. One concerns the compatibility of the doctrine of creation with Darwin's Common ancestry thesis. The second, the compatibility of the doctrine of one, providence with the role that chance plays in natural selection. And a third, the origin of man and of the Genesis. I'll each in turn. So, did God create an evolving world? That not being a matter of knowledge of which is necessary to our salvation, we cannot expect to find the answer in Revelation. St. John Paul II called evolution more than an hypothesis, but that's only his personal judgment, not a matter of Catholic doctrine. We can still ask why God would create such a world. One can of course only speculate about why God does things exactly that he does, but here's a guess. Why a world characterized by formal succession? Dominican priest Nicanor Ostriaco offered these reasons a few years ago. Uh, He was, God was in a way, able to produce more species to reflect his glory Four billion species created over a three billion year period is far more than the eight million extant species today. In fact, it would have been ecologically impossible for all four billion species to coexist on our planet because there's only a limited number of ecological niches on the planet that make your Why not successive fauna formed directly by God? French Dominican, uh, dallant wrote at the end of the 18th century, the genesis of the the organic world through the uh, intermediation of natural agents requires infinitely more ingenuity than does direct creation. Between a watchmaker who makes a precision watch and an inventor who creates a machine capable of producing the same watch, I have no hesitation, the inventor seems to be 100 yards above the watchmaker. That puts the fittingness of a derivative creation, for example, by evolution, clearly enough. German Jesuit, Ludwig von Hammerstein, used a neat analogy to illustrate the extent to which an evolutionary world manifests divine skill in a way that the special and independent creation or formation of individual species does not. In 1903, he wrote, a billiard player wishes to send 100 balls in particular directions, which will require greater skill. To make a hundred strokes and send each ball separately to its goal, or by hitting one ball to send all the ninety-nine others in the directions which he has in view. Jesuit entomologist Eric Bosman, at the beginning of the twentieth century, also added, "God's power and wisdom are shown forth much more clearly by bringing about these extremely various morphological and biological conditions through the natural causes of a race evolution than they would be by uh, direct creation." of the various systematic species. So what about, about providence and natural selection? Is the idea that the role of chance in evolutionary biology, both in Darwin's version and in that of today, is inconsistent with the idea? that it's is that, is that idea inconsistent with the idea that the world was designed by God? That uh, divine wisdom itself orders all things well? Is the role that evolutionary biology gives to chance inconsistent with the Doctrine of Divine Providence? I think not. The role of chances in contemporary evolutionary biology is limited to the generation of the variation within a population, which is necessary to the operation of natural selection. Random processes can be chosen deliberately in order to serve larger realms. An analogy should make this clear. Honest casinos rely on random processes, and are designed to do so in order to make a profit for their owners. Perhaps God designed the world in such a way that random processes keep successive generations of living things well adapted to their environment as it changes, as well as giving them the features necessary to live in adjacent environments to which they were, at first not well adapted. The very modest role which, Darwinian, or which Darwinism gives to chance is thus entirely compatible with the Christian doctrine of providence. So, finally, Anthropogenesis. Neither the common ancestry thesis nor the natural selection thesis raise the theological problems for the doctrines of creation and providence that they're sometimes supposed to raise. On the question of the origin of the human race, it matters are more complicated. Darwin's argument for the evolutionary origin of the human race is based on his idea that man differs from other animals only in degree, but not in kind. By difference in degree, he means a difference of more or less of some feature, a difference in kind It's one of the presence or absence of a certain feature. All of man's mental and moral powers, Darwin said, are the result of the gradual augmentation of powers also, already, found in animals. An evolutionary explanation of man's origin was, he therefore thought, no more problematic than was the explanation of the origin of any other species. Catholic anthropology, by contrast, is exceptionalist, asserting that man is different from animals, not just in degree, but in kind. What is it that man has and animals lack on the basis of which a difference in kind can be asserted? There are two ways of stating the Catholic answer to that question. The first is by reference to the powers that can be inferred from from an observation of human behavior. Unlike animals, man is capable of conceptual thought and free choice The second is that man has, but animals lack, an immaterial and immortal soul. Catholic doctrine connects these two accounts by asserting that it's the human soul that both makes intellectual thought and free acts possible and that underlies human immortality. We can ignore the details of that connection here. Darwin argued against the qualitative difference of human powers in the descent of man. Although he succeeded in refuting the Cartesian ideas and and the idea that animals do not have emotions, that's not enough to establish his intended conclusion. To refute domestic exceptionalism, he needs to show not that, but that animals exercise conceptual thought, and this he fails to do. What about the question of the human soul? Following his usual practice of avoiding theological and metaphysical questions, Darwin seldom used the word soul. Uh, in the only passage at all relevant to our topic, he acknowledges that he who believes in the advancement of man from some organized form will naturally ask, How does this bear on the belief in the immortality of the soul? But then he contented himself uh, in his reply with denying that there's anything particularly religious about his theory. other no, didn't really answer the question. Um, he didn't address the question of the existence of human souls. Despite his important difference, a partial reconciliation of Catholicism and Darwinism and anthropogenesis is not difficult. The weakness of Darwin's argument about moral power does not affect the strength of his argument about the evolutionary origin of the human body. And so we find him in, in, in Miver's on the genesis of species. I called him St. George Miver earlier, but that saint came, part of his name came from his parents at the baptismal font. he's not being he canonized. He's English, so right. Anyway, so, uh, Mierberg said on, in his book on the genesis of species in 1871, the first major work on Catholic, that is the first major work on Catholic, of Catholic evolutionism, that the, I, the idea of the evolution of a suitable body followed by the infusion of creating soul would uh, do the work needed. So you can see the passages there. Scripture says God made man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This is a plain and direct statement that man's body was evolved from pre-existing material and was therefore formed by the operation of secondary laws. The soul of every individual man is created that is produced by a direct and supernatural act, and of course by uh, such an act, the soul, the first man was similarly created. The acceptability of this view was long a subject of intra catholic dispute. Its critics argued on scriptural ground that God must have formed the first human body directly from son, not directly out of non Living Matter. Others, for example, Spanish Dominican Deferino Carlos Gonzalez and one uh, Gonzalez another Spanish uh, Dominican, thought that direct divine modification of an evolved animal body would be sufficient to accommodate exegetical concerns. Corbin Confollis wrote, a hypothesis might be juxtaposed with the possibility that causes or agents, other than God, intervene in the preliminary preparation of Adam's body up to an imperfect stage of development, reserving the final stages of its preparation to receive a rational soul to divine action. In this way, the essence of memory hypothesis is preserved with due regard to the direct and immediate action of God in the formation of the body of the first man, action which traditional biblical exegesis uh, seems to require. The theological acceptability of Memorand's uh, idea was given provisional formal recognition by Pope Pius XII in his in 1950 encyclical, Humani Generis, he said, the teaching authority of the church does not forbid, in conformity with the present state of human sciences and sacred theology, research and discussions on the part of men experienced in both fields, does not forbid them to take place with regard to the doctrine of evolution, uh, in as far as it inquires into the origin of the human body as coming from pre-existent and living matter. for the Catholic faith obliges us to hold that souls were immediately created by God. The this account of anthropogenesis is a mixed account. Evolution's the answer to the question what produced the first human body, and creation of the question what produced the first human soul. Neither alone, only both together, answer the question what produced the first human being. The situation is precisely analogous with respect to the question the origin of every individ- human individual whose soul. No less than that of the first human being was directly created by God. Human reproduction, according to Catholic theology, is not a purely biological process. It requires a combination of a biological process and an of creation. So, is evolution at odds with Genesis? The short answer is no. As long as the theory of evolution is understood as a scientific explanation of how the material world changes over time, it has no implications for the doctrine of creation, <coughs> nor is the doctrine of creation for it. Darwin's theory, offers an explanation of what kind of change, the emergence of new plant animal species, without for the most part touching the metaphysical and theological questions that Darwin always tried to avoid. He failed to recognize that however much his his theory might be able to explain the origin of the human body. Some human mental powers, mental powers, conceptual thought and free will are not only different from any power possessed by animals, but beyond the reach of merely material beings altogether, and therefore beyond the reach of the theory of evolution. That, like his theory of how inheritance works, (pangenesis, he called it, must be rejected, One might make the same point different. Human beings are partially constituted by immaterial souls, as a scientific theory of evolution cannot address questions of the origin and existence of immaterial things. As long as Genesis is understood as to address the theological question of creation, and not questions about how exactly the created world has changed over time, uh, it does not conflict with the evolutionary account of how such change happened. St. Thomas offers us less, uh, a less narrative, more propositional account of what the idea of creation means, one that's consistent with the scientific theory of the origin of plant and all species and even in an the natural world, in the human body.